Let's declare our faith together in the words of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to Hades. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. Well, this morning we have come to the line in the Apostles' Creed, which reads, From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. This is the eighth message in this series. We live in a world in which increasing numbers of people do not know where they have come from or where they are going. Regarding the question of origins, they don't know where they have come from because they have rejected the very notion of a creator God, have opted for an entirely naturalistic and materialistic worldview. And having done that, they dismiss the one fact that might give some sense of transcendent meaning to their existence and purpose to their lives. Regarding the question of destiny, they have no idea of where they're going, nor any eternal hope. And why is that? Because having rejected the notion of God as creator and of themselves as his creatures, they also deny any sense of accountability to him. So while they may be open to all kinds of ideas about things like reincarnation and past lives, the annihilation of the soul in nirvana as in Buddhism, or becoming one with the all soul as in Hinduism, if and when they hear someone say that the God of the Bible calls them to repent of their sin or to face eternal judgment, they are apt to respond, who is this God and what gives this God the right to tell me what to believe or how to behave? And insisting that there was no creation, they conclude accordingly that there will be no resurrection from the dead, at least in the manner in which the Bible presents it. And hence, conveniently, no judgment Uh, Some in our present culture anticipate the world ending in nuclear holocaust. Um, One well-known U.S. representative says we only have about 12 years until all that happens. Uh, Others expect that the earth will be destroyed in some kind of ecological disaster. Still others envision escaping this planet and colonizing another one. Uh, And then there are those who blow it all off and say, who cares? Eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. And then there are those who, aware of the promise of Jesus that he would return, and observing the extended length of time that has elapsed since he made that promise, conclude, in fact, that the promise was an empty one, that it was a false prophecy, that it was a false dream. The Apostle Peter addressed this attitude when he wrote, This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior 
through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. And they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. In other words, Peter wants to tell us, don't give up on the promise. Don't lose heart. Trust the word that God spoke first through the prophets, then through his only son, Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. Come to terms with the fact that God, is fact, in fact, is sovereign over all of creation and, and all of history, and that he has an intentional purpose in his delay, or what seems to us from our perspective to be delay, which is that more and more people would have opportunity to hear the saving message of the gospel of Jesus Christ turn from their sin, transfer their trust to him. I was reminded again this week that Jesus and the prophets had more to say about the events of the last days and the second coming of Christ and the judgments that will follow than I would have time to address in a decade of Sundays. Um, For that reason, I'm grateful when I find passages like Hebrews chapter 9, verses 27 to 28, that state things so simply and succinctly, because there we read, and just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. See, the Bible is really quite clear, and it is replete. The return of Christ will bring judgment, which we will come to understand this morning in simplicity and hopefully a measure of clarity. But for those who have transferred their trust to Jesus Christ, uh, the prospect of judgment is not a fearful one because his return will mean the realization of the fullness of our salvation when he comes to take us home to the place he has been preparing for us. So the waiting of the Christian for the return of the Lord is not riddled with terror or horror, fear, anxiety, but rather with expectancy, eagerness, and joy. There are three judgments, in fact, mentioned in the Bible, in the New Testament, and I want to show them to you briefly in the context of what I've come to believe the Bible reveals to us as the plan or the schedule or the calendar, if you will, for the last days. And the next event on the prophetic calendar, if we want to call it that, is what Christians refer to as the rapture of the church. The rapture of the church. The Apostle Paul described this in his first letter to the church in Thessalonica. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep, that is, those who have died. For the Lord himself 
will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So he's coming. It's going to be noisy. It's going to be loud enough to wake the dead. The dead in Christ, those who have died, will rise. It'll be a great day to be at a cemetery. You know, perhaps it would be Memorial Day. It'd be, a, be a great day to just watch the ground explode. And, and then uh, those who are alive at that moment will follow them into the air. And it just occurred to me there might be dirt falling on us as we pursue them into the sky. But then we will always be with the Lord forever. So encourage one another with those words. Sometime after the rapture, Christians will stand for judgment. For Paul wrote to the Corinthians, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So the first of the three judgments... By the way, none of this is in your notes, you know, and so this is all free, this this preliminary stuff. The truth is I had to have this turned in on Wednesday because I wasn't here on Thursday, so the sermon was all developed after Wednesday. So there you go. That explains why you're having trouble with your notes form. Where is he going? Yeah, the first of the three judgments is accordingly called the judgment seat of Christ. The judgment seat of Christ. And we know on the basis of Scripture, especially a passage like Ephesians 2, 8 to 9, that Christians are not saved on the basis of our works. But rather we are saved only as a gift of God's grace, His undeserved kindness, and only through personal faith in Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, which I take to be the faith itself. The faith itself is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, Christians will not be judged as to our eternal salvation. In fact, your sin will never be brought up again. Isn't that good news? You know, he said, I will remember it no more, which means not that he'll forget it, but that he won't bring it up never leveraged against you again. Christ bore your sins in his own body and and finished the work of salvation at the cross. So at the moment you put your faith in Jesus, you entered into all of the blessings that flow down from the cross. Forgiveness of sin, uh, redemption, reconciliation, eternal life, the baptism and indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And instead, when you stand before the judgment seat of Christ, then the judgment he renders will determine your eternal, not salvation, but rewards. Rewards. Again, we're not saved by our works, but we will be rewarded in heaven on the basis of our works. That is what we have done to serve Christ with the gifts, the abilities, the time, the money, the possessions, the relationships, the opportunities that God gave us. And each of us will be rewarded in varying measures. But notice the very next verse in Ephesians 2, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, 
which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we're not saved by our works, but we are saved for good works. And at the judgment seat of Christ, we will be rewarded according to those good works. Immediately following the rapture of the church, we'll commence a seven-year period that the Bible refers to variously as the 70th week of Daniel, uh, the time of Jacob's trouble, the tribulation, the great tribulation. Remember well that the church will have been removed from the earth before the tribulation begins. You think they'll miss us? I think they will. I think a world without the church is going to be a drastically different world, don't you? This will be a a time of difficulty and suffering like none the world has ever known. It will be a, a time of widespread and intensified spiritual deception as the Holy Spirit withdraws his restraining power and all hell will literally break loose. The scriptures indicate that there will be an unprecedented increase in war and in natural disasters. Disease and famine will exponentially increase. Over a quarter of the earth's population will die. Those who do come to faith in Christ during the tribulation period, and there will be many, uh, will pay a terrible price. Being persecuted, being arrested, being imprisoned, large numbers of them executed for the name of Jesus. As a result, false believers will defect from the faith. The governments of the world will throw off all moral law, and people will be unrestrained in their sin. But it will be in the middle of the tribulation that the Antichrist, the son of perdition, will be revealed. And he's going to set up something in Jerusalem, in the rebuilt temple, called the abomination of desolation. Now, we're not exactly sure what that is. But one thing we can know is that it will represent a severe desecration of the temple and, and probably will involve some kind of command to worship the Antichrist himself. Jesus said of this seven-year period that there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no and never will be. So think about that for a moment, the effects of all of the world's holocausts, all of the world's pogroms, genocides, plagues, Famines, natural disasters combined will not compare to the terrible human suffering and natural devastation that will occur during just seven years. And the worst of it in the latter half of those seven years. And yet the Bible also tells us that during the seven-year period of tribulation, the gospel will be preached to the end of the world. There will be a widespread turning of the Jews to faith in Jesus as their Messiah And then the end will come. And the close of those seven years will include cosmic signs in the heavens and then one final sign, the sign of the Son of Man. And again, we we don't know exactly what that is, what it will be. Many believe it's simply Jesus himself appearing in the heavens. Matthew 24, beginning at verse 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. 
In Revelation 1.7, John echoes, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. Every eye. Every eye, presumably on earth, will see him as he comes. Even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. And then the Bible says that all the nations of the world with the Antichrist and the another figure called the false prophet at their head will gather to wage war against Jerusalem and Jesus will come down out of heaven with the armies of heaven, defeat them with the sword that comes from his mouth, it says, which many interpret to mean simply a spoken word from his mouth. And then the Antichrist and the false prophet will be captured and will be thrown into the lake of fire. Immediately following the tribulation period will come the second judgment, known as the judgment of the sheep and the goats. And we're going to return to that momentarily and linger there. But after the second judgment, then, will come, commence a 1,000-year reign of Jesus Christ on the earth, known appropriately as the millennial reign of Christ. And at the close of that 1,000 years, the close of the millennium, devil and his angels are defeated once for all, and they are cast into the lake of fire. Um, and then comes the, the third and final judgment, known as the great white throne judgment, when the dead are judged, death and Hades themselves are cast into the lake of fire. And you can read about that in Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. So now let's return to the second judgment known as the judgment of the separation of the sheep and the goats. Will you stand with me again and let's read this passage together. Matthew 25, beginning at verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison? And did not minister to you. Then he will answer them saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. 
This is God's word. You may be seated. Well, the passage of scripture that we just read together is one of the most severe and sober warnings about judgment in all of scripture. These words of Christ are not recorded in any of the other gospels. This is not a parable. Sometimes people refer to it as the parable of the sheep and the goats. It is not a parable. Matthew portrays Christ as king here and shows him coming in glory and sitting on his glorious throne. Jesus' first order of business, notice, as earthly ruler is to execute judgment. He sits to judge those who are alive at his coming, and the separation that takes place is between the sheep who are true believers and the goats who are, in fact, unbelievers, or we might say false believers, pseudo-believers. But observe with me, first of all, this is where your notes begin, by the way, that Christ himself is the judge. He is the judge. God has given to Jesus the authority to judge the world. Sometimes we don't think of it that way. But Jesus himself said, for the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Jesus is the judge. Jesus gives himself three different titles in this passage. The first, again, is Son of Man. Notice verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. We've spent a little bit of time in previous messages on that, so I won't belabor it this morning. But the second title he gives to himself is in Matthew 25 is King, King. And this is actually the first time in any of Christ's recorded statements that he explicitly refers to himself as King. He spoke often of the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. But until this moment, with the exception of his interaction with Pontius Pilate, he had not, as far as we know, claimed the title of King which he does here at verses 34 and 40. But he is now exalted, isn't he, to the right hand of the Father. He comes as a king, and as king, he comes in glory and sits on his glorious throne, which serves on this occasion as a bema seat, a judgment seat, because his first order of business is to execute judgment, determining who will have the right to enter his kingdom. Secondly, consider the time, the time when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him. Consider the time, the occasion. In John's vision of the throne room of God in Revelation 5.11, he records that the angels around the throne of God numbered myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. And this word myriad loosely means a group of 10,000. Uh, In those days, it was a word that was used figuratively to just represent a number too large to reckon, an unlimited number. And today we might say a gazillion, right? Uh, We might say millions of millions, but in fact, there are probably billions that that John was describing there in Revelation 5.11 around the throne of God. So as Jesus is coming in glory with all of his angels, it says all of his angels, just don't picture a few. Picture literally billions so that there's no sky visible, only angels. 
the raptured saints will be with him as well, you and I. Paul wrote to the Colossians, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Jude 14 to 15, behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all. So not only does Christ come with his angels, but he comes with all of the saints. And we will participate in, presumably, in the, in the judgment. Just a chapter earlier, describing his appearing, Jesus said, Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. By the way, last Sunday, I heard this story after last Sunday, and I remember if you were here that I was wanting you to get the idea of clouds in your mind, and I asked you to say the word cloud on a few different occasions, and there was one son of an unnamed pastor who turned to his dad and said, what is this, kindergarten, where you're discovering words? Just had to share that. It was a great, great moment in my week. The Son of Man is coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. This is also the event that John saw in Revelation chapter 19. And, and just get a load of this. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, We're following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. When Christ returns, the opportunity for salvation will be over. 
it will be past. Gone forever. Christ is returning to judge the world and to establish his kingdom on earth. And only the sheep will be allowed to enter. Third, consider just briefly the place, the place. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. And the question here is, where is that throne situated? And the answer is somewhat easy because the thrust of the Old Testament prophecies regarding the establishment of Christ's kingdom on earth is that he will sit on the throne of his father David and will rule over, or rule rather from Jerusalem. This is the fulfillment, the ultimate fulfillment of the covenant God made with David that he would raise up one of his descendants who would sit on an eternal throne and that he would establish his throne and his kingdom forever. Jeremiah prophesied, In those days and at that time I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell securely, and this is the name by which it will be called, The Lord is Our Righteousness. And the prophet Joel wrote, The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth quake. But the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain, and Jerusalem shall be holy, and strangers shall never again pass through it. Not surprising, is it, that Every day when we turn on the television, Israel is still at the center of world news. Christ's earthly throne will be situated in Jerusalem, and from there he will rule over the whole earth. And then we should ask, who are the subjects of this judgment? Who are the subjects of the judgment? Verses 32 to 33, before him will be gathered all the nations. The word here is ethne. It's the word from which we get our word ethnic or ethnicity. It doesn't speak to nations with borders. It speaks to all of the peoples of the world. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. We know who the sheep are by the other designations given in this passage, but the first clue, of course, is simply that he calls them sheep. It brings to mind Jesus' teaching in John 10, where he calls himself the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Second indicator here is that he places them on his right hand. In Hebrew thought, the right hand is the place of strength. It is the place of honor. It is the place of dignity. The third indicator is that he invites them in verse 34 to come. Come. He invites them into closer relationship. And the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father. It's important to understand that blessed in verse 34 is in the present continuous tense. It's not you who are going to be blessed, but literally it's you who are 
now being blessed. You are in a state of blessing. You're in a condition of receiving God's continuous blessings. That the blessing of God is to bring us into the relationship that he desires us to have with him. Finally, he invites them not only into a deeper relationship, but he also into their eternal inheritance as the sons and daughters of God. Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. The goats, on the other hand, he places on the other hand. Uh, In this case, goat is not an acronym for greatest of all time. Uh, Again, in Hebrew thought, the left hand was was viewed figuratively as not only kind of second best, second to the right, but the left hand was symbolically associated with evil, with bad luck, with with bad omens. So verse 41, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Notice that instead of inviting them to come, he commands them to depart. Instead of blast, he calls them cursed, doomed, on the road to condemnation and destruction, on the highway to hell. And instead of inviting them into deeper relationship and into a blessed inheritance, he sends them into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Now I want to just pause right there and I want you to notice what he is saying. He doesn't say that the eternal fire was prepared for them. He says that the eternal fire was intended for Lucifer and the angels who were who rebelled against God and were consequently cast out of heaven. The lake of fire was never intended for human beings. But those who join the devil and his angels in their rebellion will inevitably join him join them there so those are the subjects let's understand the purpose of the separation this judgment of the righteous and the unrighteous and what i want you to see is it's not a trial with the goal of discovering who are the sheep and who are the goats those are already established. It has one sole purpose, which is to hand down a formal verdict and then to pronounce sentencing. Because, of course, the evidence is all in. It's all in. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And notice what I would just call the self-unconsciousness of the sheep. I wasn't sure if it should be unselfconsciousness or self-unconsciousness. I settled on self-unconsciousness. Verses verse 37 and following, then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? So you can hear their surprise, can't you? 
And they're, they're, they're not just surprised, they're a little alarmed. They seem unaware that their deeds constituted service to Christ himself. Much less were they thinking that they might have earned his favor by those works. The good deeds were merely the natural outflow of a heart of faith. It was the fruit of their character. And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. And of course, his words to the goats are all the same, right? But in reverse. They had not done any of those things. Their response comes in the form of protest. Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? They're surprised as well, but they're surprised for a different reason because presented with the the same set of human needs, living in the very same world with the very same people, they neither perceive them nor are they motivated to, to do anything to relieve human need. Why not? And again, just as with the sheep, the answer is because of who they are. Or more precisely, because of who they are not. They're otherwise distracted, they're self-indulgent, they're self-absorbed, and then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. The evidence just proves that who is fit for the kingdom of God and who is not. It comes down to what they thought of Jesus. And that is evidenced by how they treated his brothers. And so there's uh, another set of characters there in our story who are his brothers. In Mark 3, Jesus is in a house surrounded by a large group of people teaching them. While he was still teaching, speaking to the people, Behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. So who's he describing? Jesus' brothers, in this case, are his followers. We would say today they are Christians. Whether they're Jewish Christians, Gentile Christians, doesn't matter. The sheep and the goats are marked by opposing attitudes and actions toward who? Toward the followers of Jesus. They are the brothers. We need to be careful here because it would be easy to read a passage like this one and conclude that the Bible actually teaches a doctrine of salvation by works. Um, It does not. The sheep are sheep by the grace of God alone, not because of anything they've done to make themselves worthy. Their deeds are not the root of their salvation. They are the fruit of their salvation. Authentic faith is always revealed in service to the body of Christ. Remember what James, the brother of Jesus, wrote. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? 
So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And Christ is saying, in effect, to the sheep, you are the chosen children of my Father. Your faith is made clear by the service you have rendered to me. Welcome into my kingdom. And then let's look at the condemnation. Condemnation. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, or cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. It's something I've realized in my own life, observed in others, is that we often fail to perceive the seriousness of sin and rebellion. These are sobering words Jesus spoke. Depart from me means eternal separation from God. Eternal fire means everlasting torment. I saw a post on Facebook recently from a guy who asked the question, how could a loving God send people to hell? I don't know this man, but being who I am, I couldn't resist responding. And I answered, here's another question. Why would people who have spent their entire lives ignoring God and his will for their lives want to spend eternity with him? He didn't answer. Surprisingly for Facebook, neither did anyone else. And it wasn't long before he deleted the post. Now we can look at this passage and conclude that that Christ condemns the goats solely because they failed to do good works that were right in front of them. We would call them sins of omission, things you should have done that you didn't do. But please understand that they are no more condemned on that basis than others are saved because they did good works. The goats are cursed and condemned because of their unbelief. They've rejected Christ, the king, and that choice is clearly reflected in the ways that they treat his people. Finally, the moment. What moment? This moment. The moment you and I are in right now. We know that Jesus is coming for his church. He could come today. He could come tomorrow. He could come 200 years from now. We don't know when he is coming but we know that he'll come and we know there's nothing standing in the way from the perspective of end times events. The apostle Paul wrote to the church in Corinth and issued this compassionate warning, working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time I listened to you And in a day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Interestingly, the word that he used for time is not the word, Greek word, chronos, chronos, from which we get the word chronology, meaning the unlimited passing of time. Instead, it's the word kairos, 
It speaks of a, a moment in time, a, a window of opportunity, if you will, that, that has opened and will one day close. Here's what I know. At that moment when either you die or Jesus comes in glory to judge the nations, that window of opportunity will have closed forever, never to be reopened. Your eternal salvation depends on one single personal decision, whether you will transfer your trust to Jesus Christ as your Savior, transfer it from all that other stuff, and we talk about that a lot, all that, all that other stuff that you count on, all, all that other stuff you depend on to prop you up, to give you hope, whether it's false hope or not, all that stuff. You transfer your trust from that to one thing and one thing only, rather one person and one person only, Jesus Christ and what he accomplished for you, what he finished for you at the cross. Submit to him as your king and your Lord. Paul says, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. What would, what would that mean? It might mean that you, you heard it, you appreciated it, you admired it, you kind of wanted to affiliate yourself with it, but maybe you never really appropriated it for yourself. You never kind of crossed that finish line and, and put your faith in Jesus. He is holding it out to you in this window of opportunity. Will you receive it? On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. And he broke it. He said, this bread is my body given for you. Eat it in remembrance of me. Let's eat together. After dinner, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Drink it, all of you, in remembrance of me. A new covenant, a new deal, a new offer, a new relationship, not based on our performance, but on his, not based on what we could do because we couldn't keep the law, but based on his perfect keeping of the law and his perfect sacrifice for us. That's the new covenant, that he would put his spirit within us. So communion is really only for those who have trusted in Christ. It's only for sheep. It means nothing to anyone else. One little kid here at LifePoint one day said to his dad, Dad, I want to... I want to have snacks as we were about to take communion. Not a snack. It's a memorial service. It's a, it's a, 
and remembering. Not only that, but it is proclaiming, Jesus said, the Lord's death until he comes. And on that day, no further proclamation will be necessary because the window on that day will close. May we not receive the grace of God in vain. Amen.